It shall not be pruned nor dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no more upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his pleasant plant. And he looked for judgment, but behold oppression, for righteousness, but behold a cry. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 123, The Vineyard of God. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. In a recent article in the Jerusalem Post, David M. Weinberg describes, from an historical perspective, the wondrous nature of what he calls the Israeli wine revolution, the production of celebrated wine from the land of Israel. Quote, Consider the following. In the heyday of King Solomon's reign in the 10th century BCE, It is said that Judah and Israel dwelt safely, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, from Dan to Beersheba. Wine played a central role in temple libations and celebrations, and in all community festivities. And in recent years, Israeli archaeologists have discovered hundreds of ancient wine presses and wine storage amphorae from the First and Second Commonwealth periods. After the destruction of the Second Temple in 70 CE, Jewish agriculture and viticulture in the land of Israel went into decline. And, in the 7th century, the Muslim conquerors of the Holy Land ripped every grapevine out of the ground. This put an end to wine production for hundreds of years, while the land of Israel lay desolate and neglected. Just 150 years ago, Mark Twain visited the land of Israel and noted how utterly barren he found it. Despite all this, modern Israel has become an internationally acclaimed wine center just 151 years after Zev Tepperberg led the first Jewish grape harvest of modern times and 131 years after Baron Edmund de Rothschild's first harvest, end quote. I agree with David Weinberg's words, and to this I would add that our chapter in Isaiah gives us reason for further inspiration and reflection, because one of Isaiah's famous prophecies concerning the destruction of the land and the exile of Israel from it involves an allegory about a vineyard, wherein the prophet makes a metaphor out of winemaking itself. This is a passage that teaches us about Jewish history and ultimately what it means to toast l'chaim over Israeli wine today. Chapters 3 through 5 of Isaiah continue a theme that he took up in the first chapter, that Israel is not fulfilling its ethical responsibilities to one another. Thus Isaiah, chapter 3, verse 11, 13, and 14. Woe unto the wicked! It shall be ill with him, for the reward of his hands shall be given him. The Lord standeth up to plead and standeth to judge the people. The Lord will enter into judgment with the ancients of his people and the princes thereof, for ye have eaten up the vineyard, the spoil of the poor is in your houses. In chapter 5, Isaiah focuses on a pursuit central to Israel's agricultural society, winemaking. He says, Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill, and he fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof and planted it with the choicest vine and built a tower in the midst of it and also a wine press therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes, and it brought forth wild grapes. Isaiah here speaks of the beloved of Israel, who is of course God, and we must understand the allegory. The late Professor Yehuda Felix of Barilan University, who has given us incredible scholarship regarding biblical and rabbinic texts about the animal and botanical world, provides a fascinating explanation for our passage. One can have, he writes, a hilly, rocky area whose land is actually extraordinarily fertile and can produce the most wonderful wine. But this requires tremendous work. The land must be cleared of growths and then must have all stones taken away. After the planting occurs, a variety of actions must be taken in order to protect the grapes. 
all of which Isaiah describes here. The land in which the vineyard is planted is, for this allegory, the land of Israel. And the people of Israel itself, the chosen people, is the vintage that God sought to plant there. But, as Professor Felix notes, Israel had already given reason to the beloved to worry that the planting would not go as planned, because it had shown itself to be a stiff-necked people already during the 40 years in the desert. And thus, it was, though Israel was planted in a spiritually fertile soil, in a land designated for its destiny, Israel nevertheless refused to flourish in the way that the Almighty intended. God, as it were, is distressed, according to Isaiah, with the moral vintage of the vineyard. At this point in the biblical text, God, he who has planted the vineyard, planted Israel in the land, now speaks in verse 3. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. What could have done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. And now go, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof, and it shall be eaten up, and break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down. And I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned nor dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no more upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his pleasant plant. And he looked for judgment, but behold oppression, for righteousness, but behold a cry. The vineyard that is the people of Israel has not spiritually flourished in this land. And in describing the sins of Israel, Isaiah further keeps up the theme of the vineyard. The irony is that whereas God's planting has proved to be a disappointment, the unethical members of Israel, Isaiah argues, continue their own narcissistic embrace of life's pleasures, especially wine. As we have discussed before, wine can serve as a source of hedonism and escapism, or it can serve as a true inspiration for l'chaim, embracing life in its fellowship and its sanctity. But, Isaiah argues, many Israelites have chosen the former. Thus, verses 11 through 13 and 22 through 24. Woe unto them that rise up early in the morning that they may follow strong drink, that continue until night till wine inflame them. And the harp and the viol, the tabret, the pipe and wine are in their feasts. But they regard not the work of the Lord, neither consider the operation of his hands. Therefore, my people are gone into captivity, because they have no knowledge, and their honorable men are famished, and their multitude dried up with thirst. Woe unto them that are mighty to drink wine, and men of strength to mingle strong drink, which justify the wicked for reward, and take away the righteousness of the righteous from him. Therefore, as the fire devoureth the stubble, and the flame consumeth the chaff, so their root shall be as rottenness, and their blossom shall go up as dust, because they have cast away the law of the Lord of hosts, and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Thus is disaster predicted for the land in which the vineyard that is Israel has been planted by God. To what period of First Temple Judea is Isaiah addressing these warnings? Some associate it with the first king of Isaiah's career, Uziahu, a time of security, wherein Isaiah gives a prediction of a serious assault yet to come. But as Amos Chacham writes in his Dat Mikra commentary, the prophecy is also meant as a constant warning to the vineyard that is God's people in the Holy Land, and the prophecy will therefore be fulfilled in the future when exile occurs and the vineyards of the land are lost. But Isaiah's allegory also allows us to ponder the exiles that followed and to recognize something wonderful, and that is that the Jewish people refused to forget the land and continued to bind themselves to it, to remember and celebrate its produce and its vintage. Thus, the 15th of Shvat, Tu B'Shvat, evolved into a celebration of the produce of the Holy Land, in which Jews around the world strove to eat something that actually grew out of its sacred soil. 
For Ashkenazic Jews experiencing Tu B'Shvat in the frigid winters of Eastern Europe, the Jewish connection to the land of Israel was reified by their eating the one fruit on which they could get their hands, which had once grown from a tree rooted in the land of Israel. The carob, or in Hebrew, charuv, known by the Yiddish name Boxer. Rabbi Beryl Wine, who, like myself, grew up in the frozen tundra of Chicago, Illinois, recalls how, quote, the Boxer was hard as a rock and tasteless as wood. Yet I noticed that my parents, Jews of an earlier generation who were born before there was a state of Israel, or a time when free and open worship was really allowed at the Western Wall without Arab or government interference, ate their pieces of Boxer slowly and with great affection. Only later in my life did I realize that eating that piece of Boxer validated their hope and belief that the land of Israel would yet flourish and grow under Jewish sovereignty, and that the vineyards and orchards of the land promised to us by our prophets would become abundant reality. End quote. Sarabai Wine writes, and I would add in this context that strikingly, the Talmud provides a fascinating note in the midst of a lengthy discussion of the obligations that we owe our neighbors. According to one ruling in the Talmud, we may not plant a tree near our neighbor's well because the roots, though planted on our own property, will ultimately extend underground and contaminate our neighbor's water supply. Any tree, therefore, must be planted at a distance of 25 cubits from a neighbor's property. But certain trees, the Talmud further writes, those with exceptionally long roots must be placed twice as far away. One such tree, the Talmud stresses, is the charuv, the carob tree. The carob, says the Talmud, has longer roots than most trees. And one might homiletically suggest that therefore to eat of the fruit of the carob tree was thus for Jews in the diaspora to link themselves with a land and a heritage far away, with an identity, and to root their identity spiritually in a land from which their people had been exiled long ago. It is these spiritual roots that set the stage for the Jewish return to the land, the Jewish working of the land, and the wondrous production of vineyards in the land. And Isaiah's own warning, his allegory of the vineyard, is preceded with a promise that for all the disasters that will befall the people of Israel, Israel will endure, and its link to the land will endure. The promise of the land will make itself known again. Chapter 4, verse 2. In that day shall the branch of the Lord be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped of Israel. Thus, to see celebrated wine from Israel today is indeed wondrous, and Isaiah's passages ought to inspire the Jewish people to see it as a moment for spiritual inspiration and growth. Rabbi Beryl Wine describes a moment in the life of Rabbi Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin, who was a supporter of the Chovavet Zion, the movement of the lovers of Zion. Rabbi Wine writes of Rabbi Berlin, that, quote, his nephew, Rabbi Baruch HaLevi Epstein, the author of Torah Tzmima, a popular commentary to the Torah, lived with his uncle and aunt in their home while being a very young student at the yeshiva. In his writings, he recorded that the Carmel Wine Company sent a bottle of wine from its first production efforts to Rabbi Berlin in recognition of his efforts on behalf of the Jewish settlers in the land of Israel. When that bottle of Israeli wine finally reached the small village of Velazhen and was delivered to Rabbi Berlin, the great rabbi entered his bedroom and changed into his Shabbat garments in honor of a bottle of wine produced by Jews from the grapes of the Holy Land and upon which all of the agricultural mitzvot of the Torah had been fulfilled, end quote. The story of Rabbi Berlin, provided by Rabbi Wine, no pun intended, allows us to understand why the wine of Israel is indeed a miracle and why it ought to inspire the Jewish people to remind itself that the Bible refers to us as God's chosen vineyard with all the responsibility that this implies. Rabbi Wine has himself left the frigid climes of Chicago, Illinois, and now lives in Jerusalem. Reflecting on his observance of Tu B'Shvat, he writes that, quote, 
I still ate buxra this year, and its taste has not really materially improved. Yet I enjoyed every bite, and I again saw my parents eating it with me. There were many other tastier and more delicious Israeli-produced fruits on the table before me, but none carried with them the emotional message in my heart that the buxra piece did. So to me, he continues, the message of Tubishvat did not end last week with the passing of the day. Rather, it serves every day to strengthen our claim to this piece of holy ground and to confirm the great times, each person under his vine and fig tree and security and happiness, that was promised to us by our prophets. End quote. These are Rabbi Wine's words, and it reminds us that the wine of the Holy Land is indeed a wonder, and it reflects the truest miracle that is the Jewish people, the vineyard of God, and how Jews are planted in the Holy Land once again. We pray that just as in Isaiah's allegory, where the Beloved built a watchtower for the vineyard, that today God's guard tower be firmly established over the land, and that not only the wine of Israel, but also the spiritual fruit of the divinely planted vineyard truly flourish as a wonder to the world. This is Mayor Soloveitchik, looking forward to learning together tomorrow. Signing off.